Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, and thanks for tuning in to episode 53 of the Howie Games. Stoked to have all you cool cats on board. This week, one of the most passionate sports people you could ever meet, a man that absolutely loved representing his country. He reveled in singing the team's song, playing with his mates, and wearing his famous baggy green cap, which Justin Langer did 105 times for Australia in the Test Arena. Well played. Superb hundred. 23 for Justin Langer. Excellent ovation. Oh, how good, how good is Bill Laurie, the king? Now, when the man they called JL walked to the wicket with his great mate Matty Hayden, you knew Australia was in good hands, which admittedly is what the team needs now after a pretty rough recent time. And once again, it's Justin's hands that the team is in. The West Aussie recently appointed the coach of the Australian men's team. And after speaking to Justin, it's pretty obvious to me the team could not be in better hands. And if the coach is anything like he was in this podcast, I reckon they'll be having a few laughs along the way as well. I didn't realise how funny a man Justin Langer is. He actually had me snorting, snorting at various stages in this podcast, as you'll hear. By the way, the test squad has recently been announced and a big congrats to Pete Siddle, episode 19 of the show, for getting back in the squad and to Finchie, Aaron Finch, episode 50 of the podcast, for making the squad for the first time. The Howie Games feels like a proud parent. Enjoy. Justin Langer, AM. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go Thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Justin Langer, welcome to the Howie Games You're in Perth, I'm in Melbourne, which is unusual But how are you, great man? Uh, I'm really happy to be in Perth at the moment With my family and my friends Um and I'm even more happy to be talking to you. Obviously, Gilly texted me about, I don't know what, a couple of months ago. Yep. said, can you do one of Howie's podcasts? And I said, yeah, you know why? Because my mate Vlad's listens to every single way. <laughs> He's been telling me for years, but when are they going to invite you on there? So here's a shout out to Vlad's. And it's even though we're not face to face, we're seeing each other over Skype. Yep. Um, but no, it's a, it's great to be with you, mate. Hey, mate, I haven't seen you since uh, the end of last summer, um, where you're normally typically holding up the big bash trophy. Not last summer, but that's typically what you do the last time I see you. But I got to say, firstly, congratulations, mate, on, on being appointed the Australian coach. I know it's a bit belated, but wow, what a tremendous I don't know honour opportunity. What a great job, JL. Well, everyone says that. It's a great job, but it certainly has felt like walking into the jungle. That's what it feels like. Obviously, with all the controversy of what happened in South Africa, and truthfully, I've left my my dream job. I, I love coaching Western Australia because this is my hometown in Perth, and for so much of my life, I've been away from home. I, I left went on a schoolboys tour when I was 16 years old to England, and then when I, I did a year at uni, and then I went from started playing cricket in England. So even back then when I wasn't playing international cricket, I've been a a long time away from home. So for the last six or seven years, I've been back home working and the Scorchers have been so fond to my heart how the Scorchers, the Big Bash has gone. Mm. Obviously, Western Australian cricket, it was like building a family here. Um, So to leave it was a real, was a tough call. But now to walk into the, um, I guess, that top job, 
It's certainly a great honour. I'm deeply honoured by it. I know it's a huge role um, and it's a great privileged position. So hopefully I can give it my best crack. Mate, there's so much to talk about with you. We'll get to the coaching, but first we've got to talk about when you used to wield the willow out there and used to smack them mm. everywhere. Is cricket – I've read a couple of your books and there's a few out there too, by the way, mm. and there's some good ones. Um, is it an obsession for you? Is it a game for you? What is cricket to you? A really interesting question. I remember when I got dropped from the test team the first time and I was so desperately – I wanted to get back. That was my dream. Since I was a little kid, it was my dream to play cricket for Australia. My uncle Robbie played World Series cricket. I loved everything. It's just in my DNA, I guess. But anyway, about a year or so after I was dropped the first time, I was playing some game. And my uncle Robbie, who I speak to maybe once a year, he rang me. He goes, how are you going? I said, yeah, going all right. He goes, no, no. You try, you're not enjoying it, mate. It's, he said, you've got to be very careful. It doesn't become an obsession. It looks to me like it's become an obsession. And I love the game. I'm passionate about the game. But when it becomes an obsession, I think it becomes dangerous, actually. And it was a great, I still remember, I was probably 25 years old or 24 years old at the time. I still remember and I still use that as advice um, as a coach or as a parent or as a mentor that if it becomes an obsession, it becomes dangerous, but if it's a great passion and you love it and you can't wait to be, I love the game. So, um, I'd say I love it rather than it being an obsession. So when did you first start playing cricket? What are your first memories of cricket? Obviously growing up in WA. I remember Don Lee, who was my next door neighbor and Michael Lee yeah. was my next door. He was my best mate at the time. And he, Don Lee used to wheel the, um, lawnmower. Well, it must've been a K and it must've been on the pavement thinking back <laughs> down the to Robin Reserve in Sorrento and he used to every Saturday morning he used to um, mow the pitch and we used to play cricket with all the kids and he used to sort of very informal got all the kids from the neighborhood and that was my first recollection and then I, I remember um, Reston Court Dunkraig my old man built a cricket net in our backyard now we oh. didn't have a, well, and it wasn't like, it was like exactly like you see down at the park. It was the concrete and it was the, the hard wire mesh net. And we didn't have a massive block. It was just like a normal suburban house. But and we had a little swimming pool out the back. But he, in the back corner, he built this cricket pitch for us. But there's a good story about that because he built it. And, and around the swimming pool, we had this wood slatted fence. And I wasn't allowed to play in the nets with my brothers until I painted the fence, right? Ah, right? So it was like the reward. The reward was we'll build the pit, cricket pitch for you, but you were not just going to give it to you. And, and I've hated painting ever since. And like <laughs> I thought, oh yeah, no worries. I'll, I'll paint the fence. It'll take me 10 minutes. It took me about 10 weeks, I reckon. It's like, there's no worse job. Great respect for all the painters out there who are listening. Um, but yeah. And then, so we had the backyard, um, cricket. I remember watching Rodney Hogg on the black and white TV bowl into Jeff Boycott in one of the Ashes series. I remember that clearly. And then we'd, I'd be, you know, get up there with the Rodney Hogg action and my brother would act like he was Jeff Boycott on the Poms. Um, so I remember that. So they were probably, and backyard, I still remember a little patch of um, grass out the back. Brothers and I used to make some rough and play spin bowling off it. And What was um, the local rule? Oh, well, I don't know. Well, the, well, obviously, miss it outside the off stump, you're out caught behind, so you weren't allowed to miss it. Right. Um, so there was that. I think 
it's really topical at the moment because I remember clear as day um, putting the, like a lot of young Australians, putting the tape on the tennis ball, right, to get it to swing around. Yeah. Now, in this world, I'm sure we'll talk about this of um, ball tampering and reverse swing bowling. But actually, when we were kids, we did it because you had to get the ball to move. Because with a tennis ball, if you don't have tape on it, it goes straight. You can't get your brother out, right? <laughs> and cricket's a really boring game if you've got to bowl or field all the time. So you had to get the tape on it to get the ball to swing. So we had, oh, well, the contest with my brothers and the boys in the street for backyard cricket were li- literally gold. Like, that, that's where it all started, really. It's uh, it's funny because uh, you, I remember you used to run out and you had to get your old man to get down the hardware stop to get the insulation tape to put it on there. JL, what I'm about to play to you is normally doesn't start till near the end of the podcast, but I've got a couple of young kids um, mm. uh, who operate, uh, their names are Sky and Mac, but they've got nicknames at home. You're going to hear firstly from uh, my son, JL, if I can manage to get the recording done here. Mm. Hang, hang on. What's Mac's nickname? Well, he woke up a couple of years ago, JL, for whatever reason, and said, Dad, I've changed my name. It's not Mac. You need to call me the Big Penguin. So he offered, I don't know why, but what you've just brought up uh, is very relevant to his question. So this is you as the Australian coach tackling a real curly one from the Big Penguin. Big Penguin. Hi, JL. Big Penguin here. Firstly, good luck coaching the Aussies. I'll be watching. I'm only six and I can't play with a hardball yet, which I'm not happy with. How old were you when you could first play with a hardball? He's busting my chops. He's like, Dad, when can we play with a red ball like they do on the telly? Big Penguin. That's a very good question. One, one thing I would recommend straight up is get your dad to buy you or get one of his cricket mates to give you a red and a white brand new cricket ball and just have it there in your room mm-hmm. and just have it sit and f- play with it watch it because that's the essence of the game is all about the ball and there's nothing like it and smell it and mm-hmm. just get used to it um and then look if dad plays his cards right and he does it the right way and there's you know you're not going to smash too but there's nothing wrong with a smash window every <laughs> big penguin like it's all part of the growing up in australia as i used to know it yep. now mum might not like it big penguin but i'll tell you what mate as soon as you can feel it and it'll be addictive this first time you feel the hard ball on the middle of the wood cricket bat Oh, I still love it. I'll tell, you, I'll, I'll, get, I'll tell you another bit of advice, Big Kevin. Get the cricket ball and put it in a sock and get some rope and maybe tie it up somewhere to the and, – and just start practising with that so you can hit. And, and this might sound really sad, Howie, but I finished playing test cricket when I was 35 or 6 years old. Yep. And I still had the ball and the sock in my garage. Did you? Yeah, and I still go down there. If I just felt a bit – I just <laughs> – I just tap it up, you know, if I didn't feel quite in it. And it's just my way. It was like a little meditation. So penguin, the big penguin, have the bat, put one in the socks and just get that feel, mate, because I tell you what, you'll never go back. It's a beautiful feeling. I'll get him onto that. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because we so much look up to you as Australian cricketers. It's, for me, it's, it's the best sporting role you can play in the country. And you forget that you blokes – did what we did. You're obviously a lot better at it, but that you grew up with the tape tennis ball and playing in the backyard and the stocking with the, the cricket ball. And just to see you now on the other side of the country via Skype, the smile on your face and just that noise you're yeah. talking about, like, yeah. it lights you up, coach. 
Oh, I do. I love. I still remember it. Oh, honestly, that's what I love the game, and it's something we've got to keep reminding our players. Whether the Australian cricket team, whether they're a, 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 a professional player playing domestic, you have got to remember how much you love it. In fact, it's one of the things the the pillars or expectations that I've put on the players. We love playing cricket because sometimes you, mm. you know, I I, I think. Um, back to what happened in South Africa. I'm, again, I'm sure we'll get to it. But when I see Davey Warner leading up to it, he seemed at that time so angry. And that doesn't make sense. Like Davey, and I can't wait to have my first sit down with Davey and just ask him, what what got to that point, mate, where you seem so grumpy with life? Um, because we've got to keep reminding us of how much we love the game. It's a great game. And, and I think that, thinking about the big penguin as well, I grew up, they're all my heroes Dennis Illy and Rod Marsh and um, then Alan Border and then David Boone. They were all my heroes and that's really important for us. If we're loving the game and putting out this vibe to the world, how great a game it is, then that's really important. We make Australians proud Yeah. because I remember that I, and that would be my number one mantra or philosophy or goal now as the Australian coach. If we can make Australians proud, then we're doing a really good job because then we're, we're heroes to the kids, we'll be heroes to the the guy who works, you know, works hard on the building side or the guy who's, or the, the mum out there who's bringing up their kids and taking their kids for four hours every day on a Saturday morning to watch cricket. If we can become heroes again and make Australians proud, the game will thrive because it's a, it's, it is a brilliant game. It is, it is a brilliant game. When was your first game of organised cricket in the whites? You're probably wearing shorts over there in WA, were you? Yeah, I still remember my first coach, Alan Abrahams. I think he's, he's a um, Sri Lankan descent, but I still remember Alan Abrahams. I still see him every now and then because he, lo- he never stops smiling. I've never <laughs> seen Blake more passionate about the game. I, Alan, I know he had a crush on my mum, and that used, <laughs> that used to bug me a bit. I am probably probably bug my old man too, but, um, but I still remember Alan Abrahams. I thought, and if I said that now, he'd probably knock me out and say it was the most the dumbest thing he's ever heard in his life, but, but I still, he loved the game. <laughs> when I became coach, Kevin Sheedy, the great Essendon coach, he said, one thing, I'll give you some advice, go home and put in your journal all the coaches you've ever had and all the great things about them. And he said, and you'll find over time, that'll help mould what sort of coach you'll become. And the first bloke I wrote was Alan Abrahams. And I remember talking about how he was smiling all the time. He loved the game. He's just so passionate about the game. So I remember fondly, as having a coach who just loved the game so much. So when did you first play a game reckon, with Alan yeah, as your I reckon, coach? I reckon I must have been uh, probably eight or nine years old, I suppose. Yeah, I remember going down and back then you had to get 50. Sorry, if you got 50, you had to retire. Mm. And you used to get the – and I think this the symbolism of the cap goes right back to them because then for Warwick Junior Cricket Club – if you got a 50, you got presented with the red cap. And I've still got it at home. I've got this great area at home, Cal. You love it. Like Gil's told me about it. He says it's, it's my, outstanding. It's like my cellar, but down, there's, there's some wine on one side, but the rest of it is all my – and it's got all my caps. Like my Warwick – my first red Warwick cap I had, I got my Scar record, my, my Sereno Duncraig cap where I got my first 100 using Kim Hughes' bat. Um, I've got my – State caps. I've got my quant, my school cap, and it's just bright because the, the the symbol of the cap is so powerful. Because it's not just it just tells the story of my life really, and it's, that's why I love the baggy green cap because it's t- it's not just a bit of cloth. It's a bit of cloth to most people, a lot of people. 
but the symbol's so powerful for young Australian kids. And when I was lucky to have one, and it wasn't a baggy green cap or the baggy, but my baggy green cat. And by the end of it, it's now in the Bradman Museum, and it's all tattered and torn, and it probably stinks still. (laughs) But it actually tells the story of my whole cricket career because from the time I was a kid dreaming about it to getting one and then all the journeys, the ups and downs and the places and the friendships and the wins and the losses of playing for it's all it's all part of the character of the fabric. Oh, that's why I love it. I, people get carried away with it, but that's why I love it because it tells so many stories. Oh, it's funny you say about the cap. Um, i got a mate called Clint Mackay who played one test in Perth mm. um, and he was down at the Torquay Caravan Park years ago and and we were like the boys are like oh where's your cap and he's like oh it's in my cricket bag in the back of the car and he got it out and for people that love cricket it was like it was like this um, it was almost you could hear the music in the background and the light comes out and there is that cap that obviously you've worn with great distinction but just for blokes and girls now which is fantastic to grow up loving the game to see that cap it's um I don't know. Without, yeah, without, like as you said, without getting too carried away, it's such a powerful symbol about sport and and friendship and the country and and striving and all those things, Coach. Yeah, it is. And look, I did this. We did this um, for the start of the summer, and it just came out. Uh, I think came out yesterday actually. And I went and met a guy, Brent, who's I'm not sure how old he'd be, but he's been a coach for years and still plays. He's, I think he's, he's fifty odd. And I went and surprised him. And just before that, and it's on the it's on the CA website yeah, now. I saw it yesterday. They'd offered him the they'd showed him the baggy green cap. And then I walked up next to him, and for him, he was like he couldn't believe it. It was like, oh, <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh, look at that! <laughs> Isn't that special? Look at that! It fits. Baggy green. You only get one in your career, therefore you you cherish it. You look after it. You. <laughs> Hello, Justin. <laughs> there you go, mate. I can actually smell the baggy green cap. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. Mate, I love it. Want to try it on? Oh, yeah, I'll wear it again. Oh, mate, it's a beautiful feeling here. <laughs> I feel zenned out. I should be meditating like this. West Coast of Dockers. But as a player, it was a bit like, um, I describe it like the gold nugget. If you're a prospector and you're digging, 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 and you're wearing the skin off your hands and and then finally you bang and you find this gold nugget, right? You've worked so, and you find this gold nugget. Well, that's what it was like. You know, you work, work so hard and then eventually you get given. And it was funny because these days you have a really nice cap presentation. Mm. One of the players back then, it was like, it was in a box. I, I played my first test, get to Adelaide, open this box and there's all this stuff everywhere. You know, you get, when you play for Australia, for a bloke, an Aussie bloke, it's like Christmas. You get stuff. <laughs> you get so much stuff, right? You got track suits and jumpers and shoes and cash and sunnies. It's amazing. But at the bottom of my box was a baggy green cap. It wasn't giving it to me from one of the letters. It was just sitting there. Whoever packed my box, there was some clown. They didn't have it on the top. They didn't have it <laughs> gift wrapped. Just at the bottom of the box, right? So I pick it up and I'm just looking at it. And then I remember putting it on my head and I undid my buttons down to my belly button because that's what Rod Marsh and Dennis and that did. And I put it on my head and I was walking around playing hook shots. I was playing reverse hooks. I was playing... Smacking Ambrose back over his head. It's my baggy green. Lucky no one was in there because I'm having the time of my life, right? And then I go to bed that night and I put my baggy green cap on. I wore, probably wore it to bed. I got my favourite bat. Everyone thought it was a bit crazy, but you know, this is like, the, and I got to play the next day. So I found out my first test 
at at eight a.m. the day before because Moto had been poked in the eye, and I've got to play the next day. So. I, Go to a baggy green so cap. So oh, just on that, who rings you, coach? Who rings you to say, I'm about to bring your dream to life? Well, interestingly, Tony Mann, okay. who was who the cricket manager of the Wacker, rang me. He goes, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just, I don't know, just about to have breakfast. He goes, well, you need to be at the, the airport in an hour and a half because you've been selected. And you imagine that. like oh, You've been selected tomorrow. So I still remember my mum, She was. I still remember the moment she was, cooking eggs for me on the boiled eggs on the stove. I get off the phone. I go, Mum, I've been picked. And she goes, picked for what? I said, I'm playing for Australia tomorrow. <laughs> and my mum was about 50 kilos, right? And she's picking me up and she's shaking me like a newborn child, right? She couldn't <laughs> believe it. Her kid's playing for Australia tomorrow. So, um, And then my dad was the same. He was pumped. He's a tough old bloke and he was pumped. And then I get to the, I get to, um, the Hindley the Park Royal in um, Adelaide and I walk in and then Bobby Simpson got me from the airport. I walk in and there it was in the afternoon and there's Alan Border, Merv Hughes, Ian Healy, all sitting at the bar having a beer. I mean, these days it's different how yeah. the night before a test, they're meditating, they're <laughs> spiritual healing, they're, they're polishing their diamond earring, they're beating their legs like it's a joke. Back then it was polishing like they have their diamond <laughs> earrings. It's unbelievable. Now they're back then they're having a, a, pot, a glass of beer and, and I go and meet all them. That's when I get up to my room, put the baggy green cap on. And then the next morning I get to Adelaide Oval. It's, it's, this is gold. But then you realise the dream becomes a reality. Mm. And a great friend of mine from the SAS used to say, Justin, most people can live the dream. Not many people can live the reality. In other words, a lot of people want the baggy green cap or they want the green beret or they want the Mercedes Benz or they want the the house, the mansion. Most people want that. They can live the dream, but they can't live the reality what it takes to get to that. Mm-hmm. So I'm walking, I've got my baggy green cap the next morning and a little bloke taps me on the shoulder. He said, hey, what do you think about playing for Australia, batting number three for Australia today, son? Or J.O.? I said, yeah, no worries, A.B. <laughs> Dropped an A.B. on him. Imagine that. So A.B.'s dropping J.L. on me. I'm dropping A.B. back on him, mate. <laughs> but then I've got to play. Then you've got to play the West Indies. So it's nice to have the baggy green cap, but then you've got to play. Justin Langer taking guard for the first time in a test match. What a wonderful moment for him. Best time to come in at one for one late in the afternoon. 22 years of age. I got smashed in that first test. I got hit all over the body. And well, that, that uh, was it. Your second ball when you got was it your first or second ball of test cricket? First ball, test first cricket. First ball, Ian Bishop. Yeah. Ian Bishop, who, and, who uh, I've commentated with in the Caribbean, and at this stage of his life, he's a frightening man. So, what's it like when he's standing at the top of his mark? And one of the nicest blokes yes, to meet, right? Yes. So I tell that story because you know I'm there, and Ian Bishop, as you know, he's a Six foot, what, eight Trinidadian? Mm. Enormous man. Massive man. So I'm standing there at Adelaide Oval. I've got Desmond Haynes standing at Silly Mid-On. I've got Keith Arthurton at Silly Mid-Off. And uh, um, Ian Bishop's back pushing off the sights. And this <laughs> six foot ten giant looks like a stick figure in the distance. I then look behind me and there's another seven stick figures standing by. <laughs> it's the wicket keeper, the four slips and the two gullies. They are that far back. It's right. And then I've got... Desmond Haynes standing like half a foot from me at bat pad on the leg side and Arthurton on the offside. So, and this is it. And then Desmond Haynes looking at me, just staring at me. And he's, Bishop's about to bowl and he looks up and goes, 
Come on, Bishy, scared, Bishy, he's scared, Bishy, he's scared, Bishy. I'm going, oh, this is, this is a joke. And then Keith Arthur, and the prettiest man in the world, he makes Michael Clark look like Merv Hughes. <laughs> he's got all gelled up, he's got the sweatbands on, he's got the, the fancy sunnies, he's got the laundered shirt and the laundered tray, he's got little round West Indian backside, and he's dancing like it's the funniest thing he's ever heard. He's like, kill him, Bishy, kill him, Bishy, kill him. <laughs> Mate, this is all, and this is meant to be the dream, Howie. I'm meant to be playing for Australia. A bit and then different the first to the reality. My first ball smacks me in the back of the helmet. Hits him on the helmet. That's not out. That's a bit of a nasty one. It certainly stopped him. He's uh, not sure where he is. He's in a bit of trouble. I'm, I'm gone. And then the worst part of this drama happens because Booney walks down. Now, he's been hit on the head before. And this is where David Boone needs to get their man quickly and steady him down and uh, maybe make sure he's with him. What's your name? Where are you? What day is it? Toughest man in the world. You know, the Anzac look on his face. He's the toughest man in the world. And he walks down. I've been, I'm a bit wobbly. And he puts his arm around me, and I could still smell the Benson Hedges and the, the PK chewing gum on his breath because he's right in my face, right? And he's got his arm, he goes, JL, no heroes in Test cricket, son. <laughs> Retire hurt. I'm going, I'm Booney, Mr. Boone, what are you talking about? Mr. I said, mate, Boone. I said, I got Bill Laurie and Richie in the commentary, I, my mum and dad are flowing over. Give me a break. He said, just remember, no heroes. And we got through that night together. And the next morning, Booney got hit on the elbow. And this hurts, like from Kirtley Ambrose. And, you know, Booney's gone down the tough man. I walked down, put my shirt down to my belly button, collar up, swagger down, put my arm around Booney. I said, hey, Mr. Boone, no heroes in test cricket, son. Retire hurt. <laughs> and he looked at me with these puppy dog eyes. He goes, I think you're right, son. And he did. And he's off. So, <laughs> so no, he's a bit of a wuss, Booney, I reckon. But anyway, that was the start of the dream. More of JL in a moment. Next week on the Howie Games, courtesy of the good people at Channel 9, the voice, the voice of rugby league, Ray Warren. Ray, better known as Rabs, is an elite caller of sport. He is also just a lovely down-to-earth fellow who loves his job, his mates, the odd beer and a bet, and telling stories, usually about the topics just mentioned. Most embarrassing thing that ever happened is <laughs> they, uh, they'd gone halfway in a mile race at Gosford. Yep. Uh, when I came up to the broadcast box, the chief steward said, where have you been? I said, I said, having a punt. He said, well, he said, they've gone halfway in a mile race, you fool. <laughs> and uh, I, I stumbled around and I, I tapped the microphone, you know, I went like that. So I said, check, 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 <laughs> check. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, they've gone halfway here. I said, um, I'll try and call the race, but I don't know the colours. That's Ray Warren next week on the Howie Games. Back to the coach. So, mate, you talk about the dream, and the the great thing about this podcast is anyone that has achieved any level of success, and we talk about sport, has always had tough times and failure along the way. And um, reading one of your books yesterday, you're obviously a big diary writer, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just going to read you something that you wrote. After your fifth test... I think you made a pair against the Kiwis and you've written, it, it really hits it to me and then you've got left out of the side. Feel very disappointed, that bitter, sick, tearful feeling that I felt before. Just the depth of your emotion, what is it like when you walk off a cricket ground 
and you failed and you're trying to establish yourself and it hasn't gone your way. Yeah. I, I, one of the things I say now, often the, the harder you try, the worse it gets. Yeah. And because, and, and what I mean, people don't understand. I, I've actually taken the word try out of my vocabulary because try to me as a sportsman, come on, I've got to do well. And, and I can feel it. So you can see me, you know, it tightens up your arms, it tightens up your shoulders and your feet don't, can't dance, right? So, and I think as a young sportsman, it's one of the hardest things. You try so hard to do well and the harder you try, the worse it gets because you can't relax your body. And in any sport, you've got to be able to have a really tight mind as in to concentrate on what's important, but also have a loose body. So um, that, that feeling, you're trying so hard, you, you know you need to relax, but it's hard to do. You know, you've got to learn that over time, but it's a horrible feeling. And the worst thing about cricket, particularly four-day cricket or five-day cricket, you get out and then you've got to sit and think about it yeah, and stress about it. Um, and again, over time, you learn how to deal with that better and you learn how to understand what's important for you to be successful, but it takes time. And while you're, while you're looking or searching for the answers or searching for the recipe, then it can be really frustrating. So after, I think, nine or 10 tests, you'd been in and out of the side a bit, you're averaged in the low 20s. And, and you had, like your great mate, Damien Martin, you had, had a long period out of the test side. How do you come again? JL, how do you go back and you've touched it and you've felt it and you've been part of it and then it's taken away from you? Well, after I got dropped in the fifth test, then I, over the next three years, I played five tests, I played three, over the next five years, I played three test matches. So I was always the 12th man or I was always on the tours. Um, And then, but what happened, it was really interesting because in that, uh, people, I often talk about um, Steve Waugh. I love Steve War, And the reason, and he was a great captain, he gave me the opportunity again in 1998, those years later. But the thing I loved about Steve at that time, I was a young um, uh, aspirational cricketer and I just watched him. He was a run machine. He got 100 so many times and that's what I wanted to be. I didn't care about his captaincy. His captaincy was good. He was a good bloke. But he just made so many runs and he was just ruthless the way he played. So... My point of all that is, is in the time I was waiting to get another opportunity, I was rubbing shoulders and watching the very best in the world. And I saw how they went about their business. And I, and I think that was um, a really important time for me. So when the opportunity came again, um, it was, I, I felt under enormous pressure because I knew if I got dropped again, that's probably the end of my career. Tell me and, about that pressure. Where's it come from and how does it manifest in yourself and how do you deal with it? Because well, a, that, that, that's the key for any athlete, I guess, to be able to deal with that. Well, there's a couple of things there. One, and I, I was only talking to Gilly about it uh, two days ago, that between 93 and 98, and I don't know why, but it was Mark Taylor and Mark Waugh, and I just wanted to show them I could play. For those, for some, I just thought they thought I was rubbish. So I was trying so hard to show them. And then, and that's a great lesson itself because I wasn't being myself. I was trying to be something else to show them that I could play, whereas... What I've learned is if you just be yourself, you practice hard and you've obviously got some degree of talent, if you practice hard and you learn the strategies mentally and technically and physically, then you're going to be okay. But I was always trying to show to those two and that's just <laughs> looking back, it's the dumbest thing I ever did, but it's a great lesson. Um, and the, se- the second, what does it feel like? It just feels like you're, 
living, you're always living in the future or you're living in the past or am I good enough? And I had all the ins. I'll never forget a guy called Robbie Baker, young West Australian. And I just retired. And for some, for some, I had a glass of red wine and we're sitting there and he had suffered from, um, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. And it ruined his career, basically. And he was sitting there after, and so he'd finished playing. And he said, oh, you know, I admired you, JL, because you're so mentally tough. I wish I could be as tough as you were. And I remember saying, I wish you knew, mate. Mm. I wish you actually knew, because I had so many self-doubts. I was, was so worried about the future. I was so stressed out about what happened in the past. Um, but what I learned over time was if you can stay stay as present as possible and concentrate on what's important. For me, it was getting my head forward and watching the ball out of the bowler's hand and nothing else. Then it would be okay. But it took a long time to get to that point. So in some ways, JL, there was almost, from the outside, I don't know about the inside, almost two Justin Langers. When you, when you first came into your test career, you were, and I don't know how you feel about these terms, but I'm, I'm just saying, that you no, were no, probably seen up. more a, a, as a grafter. And then when you found your spot in your side, you used to go toe-to-toe with Matty Hayden. I remember one day you were 50-odd, and I think he was one. It was like there was two Justin Langers. Which was the natural Justin Langer? The the, the defensive prodder or the attacking, wonderful cover driver, hooker, puller, cutter? Yeah, it's a great question. And the perception is uh, you're absolutely right what you saw because in my uh – Third test match, people can't believe this in this day and age, but I batted, um, I batted number three and at stumps, so I'd gone in early, at stumps I was 64 not out. Right. I'd batted all day. <laughs> For, you imagine that today, Howie. People would, they'd be throwing rocks at me. They would. And then what happened, I got out that, I, I was not out at stumps, I got Bobby Simpson and we went to the nets for another hour. Because I couldn't hit one in the middle. And then I got out first ball the next day. <laughs> so for six years. But the point was that, and then I got dropped two tests after that. Mm. And but what happened next was interesting. Rod Marsh rang me and he said, i come to the Cricket Academy. I said, mate, I, don't, I, wanted, I wanted to just the world to open up and swallow me whole. He said, no, come to the Cricket Academy. And, and he said, um, when I eventually, he talked me into it, I went there. He said, mate, it's not about how long you bat for. It's about how many runs you score. He said, we're going to be, for the next three months, I just want you to be a slogger. And we're wow. going to practice. And every time I see you block them, I'm going to be on your back. So I just want you to slog. I want you to tee off. Huh. So, and it was the greatest advice ever. And, I, and it gave me so much freedom. And so whilst people say, when you became an opener in 2001, you were so much more aggressive. Well, actually, in 1993... That's when it all changed. And if you look at my Sheffield Shield cricket after that, I was mm. just teeing off, mate. Mm. I was absolutely teeing off. And it was so much fun. And it's so much more fun playing like that than just um, – but I guess looking back at it, it was nice to have the best of both worlds. I'd learned how to concentrate hard. I'd learned how to fight. I'd learned how to be defensive so I could stay in. Because one of the great facts of life is you cannot make runs from the change room. <laughs> you know – and I say that to batters all the time. And it doesn't matter if you're T20 cricket or test cricket, you can't make them from the change room. In fact, all you do in the change room is stress out or drink coffee. That's all you can do in the change room. So you've got to be out in the middle. So it's nice to have that balance between the fighter who could graft it and then learn how to adapt. It's like a, it's like a fighter, literally. If you can throw as many punches as you want. If you've got no defense, you're eventually going to get knocked out. You might win a few fights because you might land one. But if you've got no defense, you're going to get knocked out. 
And equally, if you got no, def- if you got no, sh- you can't throw any punches, and you just got all defence. It's a pretty boring fight, isn't it? Yeah, you might not get knocked out. You're not winning any fights. So when you get the balance between both, I think that's what happened later in my career. That, uh, or from '93 onwards, I learned how to have both. And you, the great players, and I wasn't a great, I was a good player, but the great players have both. They defend and they attack. And to have those two parts of the game, that's what the great players do. In some ways, Gilly. Burst onto the scene when you and him were down in Hobart chasing 369, I think it was, against Pakistan in the final innings, and you put together that wonderful partnership. And you know that was that was you at your attacking best, and then Gilly doing what he did. Have you got memories of that match because yeah. the the impact it had on the Australian people, and I would have thought for you two as individuals in that side was, ah, it's it's a, it's as good a cricket as you'll ever see, JL. Oh, still the still my favourite moment in cricket, really. Is but, it? Oh, yeah, of course. After, well, not of course, um, but it was, yeah. I mean, John, the pres- the Prime Minister rang us after. You imagine two 28-year-olds. Yeah, mate, we're on the front pages. We're on the, we're, it was unbelievable. So was and Johnny yeah, Howard the Prime Minister then? Yeah, he was, yeah. What, what did he say? Because he Legend. loved his cricket. I loved his cricket. I've got, th- got so many good Johnny Howard stories, don't worry. I think he's a legend. <laughs> oh, I loved him, mate. Like, he loved cricket, but... Yeah, I talk about. He might Johnny, be doing a Johnny better Howard job a than, than what's going on at the moment, to be honest. Oh, what a what! A, <laughs> I just. Oh. Yeah, and that's it. Might, we're not in a politics this, show. This, this 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 might be controversial, but you know when the stuff happened in South in South Africa and the the prime the politicians are in West Australia all around the country are jumping up and down. It's a disgrace. I felt like saying I went to question. I went to question time in Canberra <laughs> six months ago. Yeah. There's no worse behaved adults no. in the world. So when they start throwing stones, I didn't like that. But anyway, that's another story. But Johnny Howard, I loved him. But he rang me after. And then I remember so much of it. One, I remember my dad coming over because I was under the pump for my spot in the team again, like I always was. Yep. Um, and my dad, the night before, just turned up in Hobart from WA. And I had no idea. He said, I just thought you need a bit of moral support, son. Bit of, And that was my family to a T. Um, and he was there. And he was sitting at either whatever end you're at, at deep point or deep square leg the whole game. And I remember him sitting there and that was a comforting feeling. And then I remember the second innings where Gilly came out, it's his second test match. Like Gilly's a freak. Yes. He makes me sick. It makes people like me sick. It's like he's playing cricket, test cricket in a pair of boardies or a pair of speedos. It's like he's playing beach cricket. You know, he's a joke. <laughs> a joke. He is. He's a joke, mate. Uh, you know. And anyway, he rocks up. Out to, we're five for a hundred chasing 390, I think you said. And I'm thinking to myself, and I was about, I know, I'd probably batted for a couple of hours, and I was, say, 40, 40 not out when he came out to bat or whatever it was. And we had an hour to go. It was, he came out drinks on day four, last session. So he walks, and I'm sort of thinking, mate, if I just get another, we're cooked here. We've got no chance of winning. We're at Akram, Wakar Yunus, Shoabakhtar, Mustat, they're all, we're five run. And I'm just thinking to myself, if I just get another, 10 or 15, I might play the next game, right? Red at least ink? Get, You're thinking red I'm, ink? Get, I'm thinking red ink. I'll, at least I'll get picked for the next game. Anyway, <laughs> right, Gilly walks out. Second test match. <laughs> and I've sort of been the, meant to be the, you know, I, I don't know how many tests I've played, but I'm going, yeah, come on, mate. If we just hang in, you never know what could happen. You know, we could be heroes together. And I'm thinking, yeah, good luck. We're cooked. <laughs> I just want to get another 10 not out and be not out overnight because we're gone. Anyway. We walk off at stumps together that night, and I don't know the exact stats, but I reckon he might have been, I might have been 44, and he was like 50. <laughs> Another beauty. 
This is second test. That's what I'm saying. He's a freak. Like, uh, honestly, I feel like vomiting in this studio <laughs> thinking about how good he was compared to, to, to strugglers like myself. But, um, and one of the great blokes, as you know, how one yes. of the ripping human beings in life. But, yes. um, so he gets 50 and then the next day we win it. And I got out five runs to get. Straight down the ground. That'll be it. What a beautiful shot. It's running away down towards the deep, long-off boundary. Into the fence it goes, and that is a superb century. Wonderfully played, his first in his career. And there's the 100 for Justin Langer. His fourth in Test cricket and second against Pakistan. That's out. Langer has gone. Only five runs needed to win. And that is it. That is the winning run. And I remember, I remember in 1987 when Pat Cash won Wimbledon, jumped up into the stands. Now they all do it. And he was the first guy I remember. And he's hugging his family. Well, I walked off the ground, hugged my dad. On the way off? Before I get off, the, I just as I, my old man is giving, and this is like, oh, so not only was I batting with one of my best mates, not only did we beat Pakistan in an unwinnable series, or a test match, and then I'm hugging my old man, who's just the proudest bloke in the world. And that, as it turned out, that was the second test of our 16 run winning streak. So, and I think we felt if we can win from there, we can win from anywhere. And I remember the feeling and the change. It was like, I imagine an AFL grand final when we got to lunch on the last day and we're getting closer and the boys were pumped. The music was pumping and they were like, fucking come on. Like they're, 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 they're pumped. And I just walked out there on my chest. I felt like Tarzan, mate. I'm walking <laughs> out the back with my mate Gilly and we still need about oh, however many runs to get. And we ended up getting the runs and it was like, that was a magic moment. And then the Prime Minister rings me. Like, how? Like, seriously. <laughs> my gosh, it was unbelievable, mate. I'm on the, yeah, I'm on the news for the first time in my life because I was at, they thought I might be able to play a bit at last. <laughs> mate, classic, hey? <laughs> there's, there's certain urban legends about you that people are, that I've talked to have texted me through that I need to ask you about. Um, some, I don't know if they're true. I, there's one that I was told I need to ask you about. Fire away. Um, that you got in an eating competition with Mike Gatting. <laughs> Any truth to that or not? I got that text late last night. Yes. And I was like, what's that about? Oh, so I, I played for Middlesex and it was one of the great three years of my life. I played at, at Lord's. My, at Lord, my home grounds, Lord's Howie. You I, went and watched, I went and watched you play, playing oh. for Middlesex at Lord's. And people used to say, oh, it must be such a shame playing county cricket there because there's no people. I said, you joking? Yeah. I got the whole joint to myself. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, so Gat, who's a, mate, Gat's a classic. He was my first, I played with Gat in my first year at Middlesex. Then he became coach. Anyway, we decided, and, you know, fat Gat, he's a legend. And, uh, and he's eating habits are Lit and drinking are literally legendary. <laughs> and so we're playing this one day and I said, right, I get, we're playing Warwickshire. I said, right, I'm going one-on-one. Whatever you eat, I'm eating today. An eating contest. Eating contest. And we're in the middle of a game. <laughs> day one of Warwickshire. Anyway, this is classic because, so he goes, right, eh? no worries. Meet me here. I'll see you up in the dining room, 7.30 tomorrow morning. I said, you're on. So we get up there and he eats and we had two... Bacon sarnies, right? And the bread is like about an inch thick and the butter was about <laughs> two inches thick and there's about 
10 bits of bacon in there. And we didn't have one of them. I ate two of them, right? Like, I hardly eat breakfast at the best of times. So and, and, and by the time we'd got through, we had two big mugs of cup of tea, right? Then we walk out, and I'm already cooked. Anyway, Brian Lara's batting. <laughs> Number four for Warwickshire. So I somehow get through the first session on the top of these two bacon sandwiches and cups of tea. Brian Lara came in 25 minutes before stumps, uh, before lunch. So batting four. So then yep. we get to lunch and then we have the, oh, whatever, we had the rack of lamb, the chips. We would have had soup. And then we have the treacle sponge pudding. Oh, with her, mate, and this is, I'm not joking, oh, and it was a cold day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this is his normal day, right? So then we eat that. So I then walk out to to field and I've just probably put myself in first sip because I can't move, Howie. Like, I, I feel like spewing up. Like, this is gross. And we had two cups of tea and probably a bottle of Lucozade or something like that. Because <laughs> that, that gives us the energy, he reckons. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So... And the tea's got sugar in it too. Like I haven't had sugar in my tea or coffee for about 20 years, right? <laughs> so tea's got sugar. So I'm just literally feeling like a blob. We then get to tea. And Brian Lara at this stage, 100 not out, right? Or 110 not out. So we get to tea and then we get upstairs in the change room and we're having the Branston pickle and cheese sandwiches, another couple of mugs of tea. We're having a donut. We're having the fruit cake. <laughs> <laughs> You've got me snorting now. I'm not joking. I cannot believe it. I'm like crying. You know when you start seeing those comedy, they start eating so they start crying. <laughs> I felt like I was going to burst right. And then we get we finished the, <laughs> the last session. Mate, it gets better. Brian Lara, 274. <laughs> <laughs> You've been chasing Brian leather all I'm trying to chase leather. Brian Lara, 274. And then we're going to go out for dinner that night. And we went to the Italian restaurant. <laughs> In St. John's Wood High Road, right? And we have a bottle, and I'm the young green Aussie. And he goes, oh, I'll have some red. We'll have a bottle of, and I, well, I thought it was Rioja, but it's actually called Rioja, but I'm calling it Rioja, right? <laughs> so they think, to this day, every time I see them, they go, oh, you want a bottle of a glass of Rioja, do you? I go, oh, yeah, no. They think I'm a dopey Aussie. And then we're having the, oh, mate, we're having the, the white bait and the squid, the calamari. <laughs> then we're having the lasagna. We're having the, oh, mate. And then we have the tiramisu. It's not just <laughs> <laughs> the tiramisu and vanilla ice cream. Like by the end of the day, oh mate, lucky, lucky Brian Lara got out first ball for two hundred and seventy four. Not, not out the next day, but I can't sleep. I've got the sweats on, and, oh, and I had to go and bat the next day. So yeah, whoever your mate was asking that question, it's as true as the day's long. Like. <laughs> Brian, uh, and I've never, ever done it. I think I'd probably become a vegetarian or vegan after that because I realised how bad, how gross that eating that much food. And he does it. He still does it every day of his life. Every day. I saw Gat in England a few weeks ago and, mate, he still does it every day. You've never seen a bigger unit than Mike Gatting who just loves his food and his wine and his cups of tea with two or three sugars more than Mike Gatting. <laughs> Classic. Uh, it's, the brilliant th it's the brilliant thing about cricket, though, Howie, is that I'm so lucky to have met, so, not just played in great places, yeah. and, but to play with some great people. And that's one of the wonderful things about the game of cricket. I, some of the people I've met, I'm literally the luckiest bloke on earth. Um, we're 50, 60 episodes in. 
you may have told the best story we have ever heard <laughs> on how we go. It's a good story. Hey, and it changed pace in a in a in a big way. Um, there's there's probably a lot of you that I don't really know, and the Australian public don't know. Like I noticed when you send emails, you put um, peace and love and smiley emojis on there to me, which which made me chuckle and I enjoy because I quite often write peace on the back of one. Not in a spiritual way, but just in a, in a almost a preparation way. You're quite heavily into meditation, coach. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I, back in 1993, when, just when I got that pair in New Zealand, and John yep. Wright, who's uh, he, I think he played his hundredth, and he was a tough old bloke, John Wright, and oh, the, he opening, was the bat. o- opening batsman for New Zealand alongside Bruce Edgar and Bruce Edgar, John Wright and Bruce Edgar, right, and and. <laughs> He came up to me after I got a pair because I were picking the ashes a few weeks later and he said, um, I've been watching. He probably had a fag and a beer in his hand at the moment with his guitar. You know, he's a bit of a hippie, but a tough old hippie, John Wright. And uh, he goes, oh, I've been watching you, young fella. I said, oh, yeah. And he's the opening batsman. I was looking up to him, you know, said, and we sat there. Can you mind if I sit down? I said, no, sit down. Do you want a beer? I said, yeah, no, I'd have a beer because, mate, I would do anything at this stage. I can't yeah. make a run. I batted for all day for 63, Howie, like you mentioned, <laughs> two weeks before. Like, I'm, there's no worse batsman on earth at this stage. And he says to me, um, oh, I've been watching you. I think, you, you know, you're trying a bit hard. You need to relax a bit. I go, oh, you know, I've got cold sores all over my face. And I'm, <laughs> I can't, can't sleep. And he says, um, I think, you might if I give you some advice. I said, no, fire away. He said, I think you should learn transcendental meditation. I nearly fell off my chair. I said, what are you talking about? I always want to hit the cricket ball. He goes, yeah, I think you should learn transcendental meditation. I didn't know what he was talking about. Anyway, I go home to Australia and I did get dropped for, for the, that 93 Ashes, which I'm shattered. It's the end of the world for me. And I was at my mum and dad's table open up the newspaper, and there it was, a big advertisement, Learn Transcendental Meditation. So really? I, I don't believe in coincidences. So, And I sort of thought, uh, John Wright theory. So I went and I, and I still remember, Derek, ring Derek, Smythe Road, Claremont. I still remember. So I was that was 20, the ad. I uh, 23 years old. Learned big, learned Transcendental Meditation. So I went and met Derek, and uh, he taught me about Transcendental Meditation, and I've pretty much meditated every single day since. Um, and I find it really powerful. I did a, th- a podcast with Brett Kirk. Um, right, Sydney Swans. Uh, yeah, Sydney Swans, just a few weeks ago. And we talk about meditation and mindfulness and I found it to be really powerful and it's something that um, I'd say has changed my life in a lot of ways, you know. So, in what way? Well, it, it taught me about relaxation and it also, most interestingly, the game of cricket is about concentration, and as a batsman, you have you tend to live so much in the past, whether it's the ball before, the day before, the week before, worrying about what's happened, um, worrying about what people think of you, or you tend to be then oh, what you know. I've got to get through. If you're on zero, you want to mate. If I just get to ten, you know, I'll be okay. And then, but you're actually not f- remembering you to get to ten or to get to a hundred. You've got to be really good at the next ball you face. And Steve War again theory: a hundred percent attention to the next ball. That's what concentration is. So, through meditation, I think that helped me with learning about concentration because in meditation you come back to your breathing or in transcendental meditation you come back to a mantra or some people meditate on a symbol or a candle you know the flickering light of a candle there's all sorts of but ultimately it's about to come back to that one thing and in cricket it's about coming back to that one thing which is seeing the ball out of the bowler's hand so 
I think it taught me about that. I actually said in my first press conference of the Australian coaches, yep. I'm a bit of a hippie, you know, I'm a bit yeah. of a hippie. And people sort of looked at me, What are, you're meant to be serious and tough. And well, you can be that, but you can also learn. I, I, there's nothing I like more than at the end of a cricket season, having a month off where I can grow a beard and not wear shoes. See, this this and was and urban legend number two that right. I was told. Is This is actually a true story. No shoes and no shave. A hundred percent. Oh, this That's is a man beautiful. after my own heart. You need to well, come on a surf trip. Uh, Costa Rica oh, way, J.I. Mate. That's the way we roll down there. Just give me the invitation. <laughs> like, I, I, and, and it's funny because Hados and I, before uh, it became our ritual, before the day before every test match, after training had finished, we'd take our shoes off take our socks off and we walk out onto the grass and he, you know, he used to talk about it, it grounded him and you'd often see him yeah. you know, sitting in that meditative position mm-hmm. the day before a game. He wouldn't hit a ball, mate. He would not hit a cricket ball, but he'd be sitting there visualizing and that was his preparation because so much about, so much of the game is in your mind. Um, so we would walk out and it was just the most beautiful, like being in Costa Rica, it was we would walk out in the middle of Lords or the middle of the MCG or the middle of the of Antigua Cricket Recreational Ground or the middle of the Adelaide Oval or with our shoes off and we're thinking, mate, we are untouchable. The security guys aren't kicking us off because we're playing them and we can do whatever we want and we've got our shoes off. And all the scorchers with the scorchers, the day before every game, we'd all take our shoes off and do a walk of the ground with our bare foot because it's a nice, you know, it's a nice feeling. And, and I, I just, for me, it's almost symbolic of just, just that chill out period. And often that period when I growing a beard and not wearing shoes is where I do my best thinking and, and become at my most creative in terms of a player as a coach. So, um, and particularly as a coach where you're under the pump or I'm finding it, you're under the pump all the time mm. that it's nice to have those periods where you can just get away, chill out. I can still train, um, and I can do it with my shoes off in my own time because so much of my life is so regimented and it's to the minute Every opportunity I get to have those periods is absolute gold for me and really important part of the balance or harmony in my life. Last week on the Howie Games, we featured a man set to make a splash in the NBL after a great career in the NBA, Andrew Bogut. The big fella gave us an outstanding insight into the world of the NBA, including just how difficult it can be to foster a team environment. You know, and, and the difference probably with Australian sport and American is the, the amount of money. You know, it's, it's, it's we're not talking hundred thousand dollar differences. We're talking five, ten, fifteen million dollar yeah. differences. Of if I average ten points to, to you know compared to fifteen points, or I get that extra rebound. So there's cases where guys will steal rebounds from each other on the same team, and guys will will not want to pass a ball until they know someone's going to shoot it, so they get an assist. You know, and and there are things that happen because unfortunately we're paid on. On statistics, um, it's a statistics-driven league, and that's where I mean it's, it can be poisonous. That's Andrew Bogart last week on the Howie Games. In previous series, we have mentioned private Howie Games podcasts. If you have loved ones, friends, someone that has inspired you, or someone close to you whose story you want to be recorded for posterity, please send us an email at thehowiegames at hotmail.com. That's Howie, H-O-W-I-E, thehowiegames at hotmail.com. We'll try and organise for me to sit down and have a chat, just like a normal episode. It's not for broadcast, but for a family memory. Back to the coach. One of the great things about getting to do this for me, JL, is apart from the fact I just get to chat with people that I've got tremendous admiration for and find out what they tick, 
I'm sure people come up to you and say, I was there on such and such a day. And I get to do this on this podcast. I can say to mm. Kathy Freeman, I saw you <laughs> run that day or um, to Greg Norman, I was watching you that day at the Masters. I- I'll never forget... Um, I went to school and was very good mates with a fellow by the name of Will Anderson, who has become a very, very, very funny man, one of Australia's best comedians. He had your book, The Power of the Passion. passion. The Power of oh. Passion. Yeah. So I think that came out mid-2000s, um, and we were at the MCG on during the Boxing Day test, and you were smacking them everywhere. And every time you hit a boundary... Will would stand up and the top of his voice, hold your book aloft, power the passion jail, power the passion jail, every boundary you hit, my friend. Well, I didn't know. I am so pumped to hear the that. The power of passion jail. Uh, I remember. There's a couple of reasons I remember that. Not, I can't remember Will, obviously, but now that that's another, that's tattooed into my soul that Will had that book there. Um, I wrote that book just after I beca- started opening the batting and yep. mainly talked about the, um, but a couple of things about that test, I got 250 that you day. Did. I'm not, I'm not saying it to be a knob, but it's just, that's my highest test score. And I, there's a couple of things, Haydos and I, when I speak corporately, there's, I got an introduction video and it's Haydos and I walking out that day and we are like, cause we've played a bit together and we are smiling out. <laughs> we are smiling. There's however many eighty thousand or nine thousand, and we're smiling and we're thinking. And we kept saying to each other, "How good is this, mate? How good is this?" Like <laughs> it wasn't stress. It wasn't. We were actually embracing it because it was just not many people get a chance to do that. Walk across. No. And we often reminded. I think that was the, one of the power of our partnerships was that we often reminded ourselves on how lucky we were. So we did that. And then talking about meditation, that we were Richie Benno, and the end of the the, the great man. The greatest of all time and one of the great gentlemen, he said, I'd batted for five and a half hours and it said in the commentary, he's so calm. It looks like he's in a meditative state. If only he had have known Howie (laughs) and no one knew that, but that's what it was like. It felt, and batting to me, like running as well is like meditation, you know, because I'd go back to the one thing that mattered, which was seeing the ball. So that was a a, a brilliant moment and to play with Hados that day. But the other thing about that, the great lesson is you never mess with the Barmy Army. <laughs> because after the game, I, I got 250 and I went into the press conference that night. And for those who were there on that day too, every time Brett Lee bowled a ball, the Barmy Army were calling in for no ball, for chucking. Right. right? So I walk into the press conference and I've got my buttons undone again. I think I'm vivid. I've got 250 in a test match. He gets the palms. Will be 250. Justin Langer. Run down to third man. 250 not out. The 12th Australian to score 250 in a test match innings. Swagger into the press conference thinking I am the king of the world. <laughs> and I'm talking about, and then someone says, Oh, what do you think about the Barmyami? And I said, Oh, the Barmyami, you know, they're a joke. Most of them are 50 kilo overweight, <laughs> beer-drinking idiots who know nothing about the game of cricket, da-da-da-da. Because I was just sticking up, like they stuck up for the Poms who were useless and we used to beat them every day. Their loyalty is just to be admired because they kept <laughs> rocking up and getting smashed every week. Well, I'm also as loyal. I mean, I've been going out with my wife since I was 14 years old. i got my same mates, I, you know, 
I'm a very loyal person to my mate, so I'm sticking up like a junkyard dog for Brett Lee, or so I thought. <laughs> I've gone from the king of the world, Howie, to the next day I rock up to the MCG, and they've already got a song about me, <laughs> about we're 50 kilos overweight, we're 40 kilos overweight, 30, and then this, uh, and they started then just to lay, you're a joke or something like this, and then and that went on all day, and then they started singing the Seven Dwarfs song about me. <laughs> So then it's now the seven dwarfs, and you never mess with the Barmy Army, mate. And I also learned the lesson, mate, when you're getting going all right, don't get a two ahead of yourself because you'll quickly get brought down to earth. And in that instance, mate, I should have come over and put my arm around Will because I would have yes. be- felt, felt good about myself again with the power of passion. Power of passion, JL. <laughs> hey, talk, talking about songs in the Barmy Army and songs. Does the name of the band, which I'd never heard of until last night when I was looking online, Telemarcus Brown, mean anything to you? No. They have a song, which I'm now going to play you part of, that is a bit scratchy to hear, but you need to go back and listen to it, and I'll play some more in the podcast. It is called I Was Wrong About Justin Langer. This is the night. This is, I'm going to play a bit of it to you now. The way you looked at me told me we were going to end. A girl going away, my life torn apart. The smartphone is over because I broke your little heart. It's all my fault. It was my very own clanger. So the basis of the song is they thought you're a bit of a knicker and nudger. Someone and uh, Marcus Brown, that's it. I'm on it. What about what about talking about? They're not the only ones. Kerry O'Keefe once wrote. Right. I was at the MCG. And it was raining. And I opened up the paper. I'd rather watch green bananas go brown than watch Justin Langer bat. He reckons. <laughs> <laughs> So cop this, Howie. <laughs> and this has just haunted me, right? And I hated him. I literally hated Kerry O'Keefe. The most, I could not believe anyone. Anyway, we go and play a test match in Darwin and he's the <laughs> keynote speaker, right? So I was sitting at the front. I've got my arms folded and I've vowed I'm not laughing. I've never heard him speak before. And I'm going to look, I'm going to eyeball him. I'm going to knock him out. You know, I think he's the biggest knob in the world. I am not smiling. Within about 10 seconds, I'm falling off my table. So <laughs> I then went and I go and shake him and gave him a big hug. And then he wrote an article, like I was wrong about Justin Lang, an article a little while later, is it that the ugly duckling, you know, he talked and he's, he actually apologised publicly about the green, I was thinking I was rubbish and then being okay. So, um, yeah, a lot of people thought I was rubbish. I, in fact, I thought I was rubbish for a, a great part of my career. So, um, and that's probably the thing I was most proud about, that I was able to overcome the demons and trying so hard to have some sort of a career after, and then to be able to take those lessons to hopefully become a good dad and a good, um, good coach down the track. We'll get to the coaching. Um, my main concern about this podcast was it was going to go for a long time and I was going to take up too much of your time because I knew <laughs> I knew that you'd be a fascinating guest. And I almost thought to myself, wow, we need to do one with Justin Langer, the player, and one with the coach. But let, let, let's wind up your playing career, 105 test matches for your country. You wound up finishing alongside McGrath and Warren 
um, you recognised as one of the great opening batsmen alongside your mate, Matty Hayden, the partnership like none the country has ever seen before from a fellow that was racked by self-doubt reading your books early on in your career. When did you sit back after you'd finished it all and thought, wow, I've got absolutely everything out of myself? And how does that make you feel? Yeah, I, I tell you what was very significant for me, for some reason, make you playing 100 test matches. And I still remember leading up to it, it was, for some reason, that was really important to me that I thought, imagine if you could do that. Until you got hit in the head again. And, then, and that was my first, and I got knocked out first ball. He's hitting. McCoyne, he's hit Justin Langer. Ball one, and it was a... Heck of a blow. So that was a, a good one, like the Barmy Army, how you don't get too ahead of yourself. I'm <laughs> walking out there thinking I'm the king and I played 100 tests. When Kyra and I got, got knocked out first ball and didn't <laughs> play no further part in the game. So there you go. There's, there's a good – but um, I, I still remember in um, – I'd made a couple of test hundreds, but it wasn't until I got 100 against um, Ambrose and Walsh in Antigua. But the 100 comes up for Justin Langer. He turns around to check that Steve Waugh – is safe and well played at Justin Langer. His third test century. And so I'd pro- I'm not sure how many tests, but I thought, okay, you know what? Maybe I'm maybe I can make it at this level. Maybe mm. I'm okay. So so that took a while to get to that point. And then sitting back after, one I knew that I was actually embarrassed to retire with Warney and McGrath because, and I remember talking to friends, I can't retire on the same day as these guys. They, these are legends. These are the all-time greatest. I was a bit, um, I was, I was a bit embarrassed to re- retire with really? those two. <laughs> yeah, I had big time, and I had to, I needed some counsel to make that call. But having said that, I knew one hundred percent. We were in the change room, and we were four 0 up against England after we'd lost in two thousand and five. <clears throat> and I said to David Boone, who's my old mate, I said, you know, the wuss who wanted me to retire heard in my first test match. But I said to him, uh, mate, tell me about retirement. Like, you know, how do you know? He goes, is it on your mind? I said, oh, it's on my mind a little bit, yeah. And he goes, you're a lot, you're a lot closer than you think. Mm. I'll never forget that. And then we won that test match and I, I was the song master, so I just, I, and it was one of the great, privileges and joys of my life there's nothing like singing the Australian team song but um and I remember sitting there at the in the MCG change room and thinking I'd rather be home with Sue and the girls Mm. in the hotel I've got to get up and sing the song and I just knew and that and I went home that night and I also remember sitting next to Haydos who was desperate to get back in the one day side um, and he had that eye, you know, that sounds a bit cliche, but the eye of the tiger, he was, so, he had that look and I'd put everything into just playing that after getting knocked out in that hundredth test and th- contemplating retiring, um, I put everything into, it. I knew well, what's going to keep driving me. We've just won five nil and I, ret- anyway, I ended up retiring that night. So, um, I knew after, you know, you look back on it now, there's still a great pride in knowing where I'd come from. The Robbie Baker story of, mate, mm. you were so mentally tough. If only they knew. It was such a struggle. And th- this is going to sound, it might be controversial as well, but a couple of years ago, a friend of mine, Andy Hurry, who was the coach of Somerset, who I then played three years with after, he's an ex-Royal Marine, and he went on to coach England under-19s, and they were out in Perth. And the, he said, I didn't want to come and speak to him, no worries. And the first question the kid asked, one of the under-19s, kids, what's your greatest memory of your test career. And it was like this instinct wanted to kind of say, the day I retired, 
I couldn't say that because I didn't want to break the kid's heart. So I came up with something else. But I remember it was a really strong instinct to say, actually, the day I retired because I didn't have to stress so much anymore. Because playing international cricket, it seems glamorous. You know, people say, you get so much money and you're playing the, the game. But you're, if you're under the microscope so much internally, but also externally. And when you start, someone sings a song I was wrong about Justin Langer, it actually there's a lot of truth to that as well because you know that people have an opinion about you they yeah. don't know you you don't know anything about your family or what you do off the field they just see what they see in the, the public perception so there was real pressure to that and uh you know i wouldn't change it for the world i'm stronger for it i've got the most amazing memories i've been the luckiest person in the world but <laughs> i still remember that strong instinct when i retired thinking oh right maybe i can sleep maybe i can just relax a bit so yeah, that's what i remember about retiring and the, and the end of my career. You mentioned the song, the, the much-famed song, that a lot of cricket supporters wouldn't even realise the Australian cricket team sing a song after a victory because it's never shown. It's The cameras are never in there. We never see the singing of the song. And in some ways, as much as I'm a television broadcaster, I'd love to see it. I sort of hope we never do see it because I think there's some things sacred within a sporting environment. I would never ask you to sing the song, Justin, but can you tell me the words to the song? I can. I'll, I'll get excited. I won't sing it how it's meant to be sung. No. Because usually what happens, you've just won a test match and the the song master will say, in this case, me, Howie, for you, mm. righto boys, got your baggy green caps. And I start clicking the few bottles together, start moving the massage bench around, the physio bench around, right, you got, you got your baggy green caps, boys. And this is probably after three or four hours of sitting in the change room. It's changed a bit now, but hopefully we'll bring it back to having it because that's sacred time after a test match. You're sitting with your mates in the change room. You're untouchable and you've won. So you have a beer and you listen to some music and you talk you, the talk lies. It's brilliant. Anyway, the song master, when it's time, it's his role, my role, says, right, let's get ready to go. Baggy green caps. And you can see the boys, they sort of, ah, Come on, this is what we've been waiting for. You got a beer? Yep. And someone will bum and bick or someone will get the beer out to everyone. And then we'll put on Johnny Williamson True Blue. And there's nothing like it, Howie. Wherever you're with your mates and you're having a sing-along and we've just wanted to with our baggy ground of beer in our hand and we're all in a huddle singing Johnny Williamson True Blue. Then K-San, K-San comes on. And you have a sing-along with your mates to K-San and Johnny, you are ready to buddy sing the Australian team song. And then I'll look up and I go, right, Warney, Pfeiffer, you little bloody beauty. And the boys will lift him up and they'll tip beer on him and they'll give him, even the king will like a little pat on the back every now and then, right? Then you go to punter, another hundred punter, the way you did it, and they lift punter up, you little beauty punter, and they'll tip beer over him, and and then you'll go around the group, and you give everyone a little pep talk, and then you'll eyeball them all, ready to go, boys, and by this stage, they are, mate, they are, they've got electricity through their body, and they're wanting this song, and then we sing, I'll say it in a very yes. calm way, Howie, underneath the Southern Cross I stand, a sprig of wattle in my hand. A native of our native land, Australia, you little beauty. Second verse, same as the first. Underneath the Southern Cross I stand, a sprig of wattle in my hand. A native of our native land, Australia, you little <laughs> beauty. And then what happens is you 
high five each other, give each other a hug, and then you move on to the next one. And it's just a magic. I remember the last time we did it, we went out on a boat. We'd just won 5 0. Warney, McGrath, my last game. We'd just beaten the Poms 5 0. We go on this boat in Sydney Harbour. And the plan for that series, we do it in all different parts, but after the first test, we were 1 0 up. Second verse, same as the first. When we won the second test, third verse, same as the second. <laughs> when we won in Perth to win the Ashes, fourth verse, same as the third. And then we got to the fifth test and we haven't sang the song yet. This is a special moment. And I've written Mike Hussey a letter to hand over the song to him. So we're out on the boat and all the wives are there as well. So we actually, for the first time in history, we're sharing it with someone. So... The girls are on the boat, the boys are on the boat, and we've got to the sixth verse, same as the fifth. And like by this stage, your throat is red raw, and it's just a magic moment. But then what happens next is even more magic. Jane McGrath, the beautiful Jane, her laugh lit up the world, right? And, you know, what they're doing at the moment is just, is so inspirational. But Jane McGrath, last time I spoke to Jane, comes up, she goes, JL, now I get it. Now I finally get it. I thought Glenn was just wanting to not come home to the hotel and he'd tell us about the team song, but now I get it. It is like magic. And that's what it was like. It's like magic, mate. And like the symbol of the baggy green cap, people go, yeah, whatever, some people, but no, no, there's magic in it. And it's the same as singing the team song. And I'm with you. I know with the media rights deal now, I know people want to, and I get it. They want us all sports to be more accessible. But one thing I'll say, I hope they never do the team song because one thing, there needs to have some mystery about it. The words are fine, but the actual moment is something that's really special to Australian cricketer, and I hope that continues. Yeah, it, mate, it's a beautifully told story. Um, yeah, and I'm like you. I hope I hope we never do see it because there's got to be some for reward for achieving what you guys and girls achieve playing for your country. So. If that's your playing career and it's obvious listening, the passion and love you have for Australia and the cricket team and what it symbolises, you're sitting on your couch watching South Africa. This is the team you love and you see it happening and you're shaking your head now. What's Justin Langer, the bloke that's played 105 times for that team feeling? Well, a couple of emotions. One is I felt the lead up to that was pretty ugly as well. Remember they had the the Davy and the Quinton de Kock incident in the, in the stairwell the and there's some of the yep. stuff that was going on, you know. <clears throat> so that was happening. There was, there was a build up to it. And then my wife Sue was over in London visiting my, surprising my daughter for her 21st birthday. So beautiful moment for them. The reason I say that, so I'm home with the other three girls. So I'm Mr. Dad. Not Mr. I'm Mr. Dad, mate. And that's hard work. That's harder than coaching the Australian. Let me give you the big tips, especially teenage girls. So I'm looking after three teenage girls for 10 days. Anyway, we get home. I can't remember. I think we've been at the foot somewhere. And it was just before tea. And my little one, Gracie, who loves the scorches and she loves the big bash. And we're sitting there. It's just before, I think it was lunch or tea, but it was about nine o'clock. It was about three minutes to nine Perth time. And Gracie wants to go to bed. And I said, oh, and I flicked the tally on because we'd been out somewhere. Anyway, just before the break, they had this replay. And I, all I can see is this hand with the something which was obviously sandpaper. 
and I recognized the hand because Cameron Barry's got really big hands and Cameron Barry's like literally like one of my sons. He's one of your boys. One of my boys. And I went to Gracie. I said, Gracie, pray that isn't Cameron. She goes, what do you mean? I said, just pray it's not Cameron. And then of course it all came out. And my, even if I saw it, we were in England a few weeks ago and they, they'd done this documentary on it. And I was getting, I was like getting anxious watching it. My heart is pumping out of my mouth because I, I was hot, but I was sad. It was so, I was, I was angry. I was sad. I was sad for Cameron. I was sad for Australian cricket. I, I knew that there's going to have a big impact. And I'll tell you how I knew Howie. The next morning, every, my hippie daughter, Ali, my second daughter, we go to the Fremantle markets every Sunday morning, Right that I'm in Perth and we go and we have our coffee, we have our Goslamay, she's a vegan, she has the vegan version of the good version and sorry all the vegan, I love vegans because my daughter is, but it's another topic. Anyway, so we're having the thing and within, we get, it got down to about 8.30 in the morning, by 9.30 when we leave, we do it every, and no one ever bugs us, I reckon 10 Australians had come up to me and said, mate, what has happened? Mm. What is going, and they were angry, they were sad and then the next day, um, I'm on the board of the West Coast Eagles footy club and they're building this new facility. And I just went and watched, looked at the new facilities. And there was about, I reckon there's about 200 or 250 construction workers there. You know, they've got their steel boots, steel cap boots on. They've got their hard hats, big, strong Aussie blokes, right? And they're all going, J.R., what's happened? They were shattered. And I kept thinking to myself, oh, this is what we do it for. Making Australians proud, that's what we do it for. And they were shattered. So I knew as an ex-player, but just as an Aussie, I was shattered, mate, because we're better than that. We're actually, the Australian cricket team is really important. In t- and I don't say that in an arrogant way, but it's just really important. Because it makes feel, people feel good. It's got, gives people something to think about. It's, it's on, like, in the background all over Christmas. It's over over the New Year. It's, it's on. Test cricket's brilliant because it's always on. Then you've got the big bash. It's cricket is important to Australia and Australians. And that's when I realised, mate, this is no good. What you know, it's sad, it's a sad day, and I felt that I still feel that emotion. I feel for what happened and how they got to that point that bugs me. So now you're taking over this side, you've had it, you've had a, the job for a short period of time. You went over to England. I noticed you talk about in your book again that you'd written to Donald Bradman mm. and he'd written you back a letter which I would imagine is treasured somewhere. Um, Still on my wall at home. Right. And the last line of it says, blah, 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 Justin, follow your instincts and don't be a slave to coaching. Coaching, that's right. Now Ironic, you're the, isn't it? Well, now you're the coach. Yeah. So what's the role of the coach for an elite cricket team? Because you're not there showing the bowlers how to bowl outswingers or the batsmen how to play an on drive. What are you doing? In your that's, mind? That's a brilliant question. I think it's about, I think it's being a mentor. Sometimes it's being a policeman. Sometimes being a dad. Sometimes being a grandfather. Sometimes being a brother. Sometimes it's being a mate. Sometimes being a school teacher. <clears throat> it's about, I, I, since the first day I got the job as a head coach for Western Australia, I always thought my role was to help these guys not only become great cricketers, but also to become great people. And I believe it. And I, I think it's as important for them to be good cricketers as it is to be great Australians. Now, as mm. the Australian head coach, is that it's about great cricketers. But it's also about great Australians. Um, and that means, and it's really hard, Howard, because what that means, leadership's really lonely position. 
there's not many great leaders because what you have to, you've got to be on it all the time. You talk about the word culture or I'll talk about the word environment. You've got to be on it all the time, mate. And you've got to pick people up on good behavior and bad behavior. So if they do something really well, you put your arm around and say, well done, that's how we do it around here. And I say that whether it's in the cricket team or my family or in the business world, you, if someone does something, make sure you give them a pat on the back and say that's because that's encouraging great behavior. But when they don't, you've got to have the courage to look them in the eyes. That's the Aussie way as I know it, to look at them and say, no, 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 that's not how we do it around here, mate. That's not how we do it. Because if you let people get away with poor behavior, you've got a bad culture or a bad, if you get encouraged good behavior, then you've got a good environment. You've got a good, but the problem with that is it's you, everyone wants to be popular and I don't want to tell mate, you're wearing the wrong backpack. What are you doing, mate? That's not how we do it around here. Or you're late or mate, you know, no one likes to necessarily do, but you have to do it. That's what leadership is. You have to be on it all the time, positive and negative. Cause if that's, you want to develop a great culture or great Australians, you've got to be able to point out to them and have the courage as you do as a parent to say, no, no, that's not how you do it. Well, yeah, well done. That's how you do it. Because it's almost, you're a teacher as a, as a head coach or a parent, you're a teacher, aren't you? And ultimately mm. that's your job. You you teach them how to be good on the cricket field or at home. And when they're out of your home or when they're off the cricket field, you've got to be a great teacher. And that takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of devotion. It takes a lot of courage. Um, and that, that's how I see my role, that, I, honestly, and that might sound a bit deep, but but that's okay. That's that's me, and that's just what I think. I think that's why I love talking to you because you you, are, you have do have many many levels to you. So something we haven't really touched on, which we don't need to now, but you obviously worked incredibly hard on your fitness and your game as a player. You played with guys like Mark War, who it seemed to come a lot more naturally to. How how do you not push every player you coach to prepare and work as hard as you did? Oh, it's a great question again. And I th- what what I learned is I wasn't a great captain because, because you, I, yeah yeah. Okay. And but one of my great values in life you is weren't learned, great because you expected everyone to be yeah preparing and training at your level. Spot on, yeah, spot okay. on. And one of my also values in life is to learn from the past whether it's positive or negative. And I think that I realized that I wasn't a great captain, but or I certainly had weaknesses as a captain because of that. I, I, I expected everyone to be absolutely elite, in every, but everyone's so different. And I've learned that you can't treat everyone the same. And, and it's one of the great mistakes a lot of people make. Oh, no, no, you've got to treat everyone the same. No, no, there's one of the great learnings for me about coaching is everyone's different. You literally have to train. Now, some people don't like that, but again, I don't care because it's actually how life works. Everyone's so different. Um, that that said, in terms of the fitness, if anyone can tell me, give me one reason why it's not good to be fit and healthy, I'll listen, but it doesn't make sense to me. Mm. Being fit and healthy, and, and particularly as an elite sportsman now, it's one thing we can control is our fitness, and we can get really fit and strong and you get paid a lot of money now. So when you get paid a lot of money, there's responsibilities. And one of those, in my opinion, I always loved my job because I say to people, I get paid to get fit and to improve my skills and make runs. Imagine that for a job, Howie. Mm. Imagine that for Mm. a job. That's what I get paid to do. So now I will still, one of the um, almost non-negotiables is I want our guys to be fit. 
I did it with Western Australia. Um, they'll all do it differently and there's different levels of being fit, but I think that's one thing we can control. And again, that's something that I don't shy away from because you're getting paid to get fit and be, be a better cricketer. It's pretty simple. Um, but the great lesson for me is everyone's different. Everyone does it different. Everyone's got their strengths and weaknesses and you've got to treat everyone differently. And I learned that through my times as a player from playing with Shane Warne and Glenn McGrath was very different. And Glenn McGrath was very different than Jason Gillespie. For, you know, J- Jason Gillespie early trained like an Olympian. Did he? Glenn McGrath, I mean, Jason Gillespie, you have never met a more professional athlete. I've never met a more professional athlete than Jason Gillespie. Huh. Michael Clark at the end of his career, he was probably as close to it as I know. And now someone like a Cameron Bancroft is as close to it as I know. They are elite professional. Jason Gillespie was like that, but he was very different than Glenn McGrath, who used to eat his dairy milk chocolate every night, but still get up and have a swim in the morning. But he, Jason wouldn't even dream about that. Like he was so elite in professionalism. Brett Lee went through a period where he didn't drink alcohol for 18 months and trained like an Olympian when he wasn't even in the team to get back into the team. So everyone does it different. And I was very different than Hados than who's different than Ricky Ponting, who's very different than Damian Martin or Adam Gilchrist. So you learn those lessons and it's important to to respect that and it's been important for me as a coach to recognise that. We're, we're coming to the conclusion of this, Coach, because you've been so good with your time. Have you thought about, if selection warrants, how are you going to integrate the three blokes that have been banned from the cricket team back into it with Cam, Steve and Dave? Well, I, I believe... 100%, and I said this in my first press conference, and I've said it many times since, there's not one person, because everyone have an opinion on this, there's not one listener who hasn't made a mistake in their life. There's no, and, and as Australians, we are we can be brutal on our star, or our heroes, or we can be, br- and fair, you know, f- well, no, no, not fair enough. I mean, it's the I've one seen, great negative of our country, I reckon, Coach, that oh, we can be so negative about people that are successful. Oh, you know, how it, it's so sad, actually. And now with social media, it mm. is literally brutal. I saw Andrew Gaff. He he punched in AFL this year. Brayshaw. Brayshaw. And literally, it was like he'd committed mass murder. Mm. As, it, in the, as it was when Steve went through the airport in South Africa. Now, we're and, not condoning and their actions my point. here. No, no, but, of course. People make mistakes. And one of the saddest moments, Steve Smith is one of the nicest people you will ever meet in your life. He's also a complete cricket tragic. Mm. His mistake was, he, as the captain, he just wasn't strong enough. As we mentioned before about building a culture and environment, to say, no, no, that's not how we do it around here, boys. Come on. And he and he'll learn from that. He'll get better. He's a ripping young bloke, and what a player! And he he's as committed to batting and and being great as anyone you'll ever meet. So I'm sure he he will learn from that. Cameron Bancroft was just his mistake was just not strong enough to say no 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 that's not how we do it around here. Surely that's not how we do it around here. He is. He is like we were talking about before, as elite professional as anyone I've ever met. And he's a good young player. He's a heartbeat. He was the heartbeat of West Australia. And from all accounts, talking to Darren Lehman, he's the heartbeat of the Australian team at the moment because he'll literally, he will, he is that tough and he will cut his legs off to play cricket for us. And they're the sort of characters you love around the place. And then Davey's the same. Davey Warner, until the incident, was like, he's the marathon man of Australian cricket. 
people think it don't remember that. Just before it happened, he was the captain of the T20 side mm-hmm. and he was being hailed and finally Australia playing good T20 and he's being hailed as the great leader. He also played every single game of cricket. He played uh, test match cricket, one day cricket, T20 cricket, IPL cricket. He would play all year round and he's so... You know, there's so many strengths in all those three guys. And if our environment's right over the next six months, eight months, ten months, and they're playing well, there's no reason why they shouldn't be welcome back in to help us win the World Cup and to help us win the Ashes next summer. And they're two big series for in, in England, so it's a long time. And if we can have an environment of great young leaders and welcome those guys back with some of the guys who are injured back on the park then we're going to be a real force and hopefully a, a team that's smiling a lot more than perhaps they were just before it all happened. We're getting near the end, as I said, Coach. You haven't faced the question from the pickle yet. The, You've dealt the with a big penguin earlier on. Now <laughs> you get the pickle, um, who usually goes a little bit softer than her brother. She's a bit more touchy-feely. Um, we were discussing how much time you would spend away in your new job. Um, and hang on. This is what she wanted to bring to the table for you, Coach. Hi, Coach. Pickle here. My dad goes away lots and I really miss him. But when he comes back, he brings me and the big penguin lots of presents. When you go away, do you bring your four daughters and your wife presents every time? She wanted to know if it was every time, JL, because I told her you go away a lot and you're going to be going away a lot more. Pickle. Mm. I try and bring home presents every single time of some description. Um, Are you an airport shopper on the way back or have you put some preparation in? Well, I'm not sure, Pickle, I'm not sure how Dad goes, but I am a horrible shopper. My wife's an excellent (laughs) shopper and she's like, she helps out with the presents most times, but I'm a horrible shopper. I'm, a, I'm at the airport on the way home style shopper, but my kids are young, so I can get away the, with that. The Your Toblerone? Girls are what, what do you go for the big Toblerone? Well, Howie, I brought or what is you it? know what cards the... back late yeah, uh, last time, cards. which were yeah. a big hit, but books, yeah. um, but that's yeah. easy for an eight-year-old and six-year-old. Your yeah. girls are a little bit more spread in age, so I don't think the airports of the world would cover what's required. Well, you know, these days, because my oldest is 21 down to 12, so, you know, perfume now is a... Okay. Well, that's yeah, a duty-free. Like, that's a duty winner. Duty-free item. Duty-free <laughs> item. So a few little things like that. And, and I hate to say, you know, no, I'm not even going to say what else I p- pick up at the airport for my wife or kids. But because um, I remember I've got a few older, a bit older now, so the okay. duty, duty-free comes into, yeah, it's pretty handy. But I'm... Was, hope, that the, was that the hardest thing, mate, about taking on the job that oh, I know you're a committed family man and you'd spend yeah, no doubt. 20 years away and then you're home, as you said, you, you're winning titles with WA. Um, yeah. and then you're going to have to say goodbye to your beautiful girls for extended periods again. Yeah, it's so hard. And I, I'm going to be on the road for pretty much 10 months of the year now. And that, I, that, that hurts. That, that, but one, one thing I know how is you'd know is that you can stay so connected now. You can. One of the great things about technology, so I'd FaceTime my family at least when I wake up in the morning and when I go to bed at night, and usually with time zones it works okay. Um, FaceTime's great. Skype pretty good but staying connected is really important and often because you you can't you still can't hug them you're still and mm. i'm going to miss some big events i'm going to miss my grandfather's funeral last week which killed me because i was in america with the on, on a work thing but um yeah i'm going to miss some events uh, and that that hurts no doubt but we know what we're getting ourselves into um hopefully the girls will get away a little bit uh, but 
Yeah, presence pickle, that's one thing. Staying connected and talking every day, that's probably the best present I can give them. I love it. As we let you go, we're very fortunate on this show, Coach, to have a lot of kids listening on the way to cricket or soccer or tennis or footy, and we love getting the, the messages about them listening to people and what they took from the interviews. If I'm a young child listening in a car and I love my sport and I want to succeed at a level of it, and this for you I reckon could be a three-hour answer, but we don't have that luxury, <laughs> no. what, what do you think the one thing they should focus on is? Well, how about, I, how about I answer it like this? If I could do it all again, what would I do? Yep. I'd say don't worry so much. Hmm. Don't worry so much. There's a great saying, be where your feet are, which means stay present. Like, Be here. Love it. Enjoy it. Have fun. I, honestly, you will play your best if you've got a smile on your face. If you're having fun, you're enjoying it. You're not worrying too much about, you know, oh, what if I fail? And a lot of kids get nervous and a lot of kids ask me, oh, I get so nervous. What I, well, how about rocking up every single time you play a game and you're going to be the hero, not the villain, not the one who, oh, what if I fail? What if I get a duck? What if I, I'm no good? No, no, how about thinking, I'm going to turn up, I'm going to be the man of the match today. I'm going to be the hero. And then do it with a smile on your face and that's a mate, one, you'll enjoy it a lot more. People enjoy being around you a lot more and you'll probably be a lot better anyway. So have fun, smile, enjoy it, and don't worry so much. I reckon your man, Vlad, is going to love this episode, Coach. What do you reckon? <laughs> Peace out, lads. Peace out, lads. I'll see you for chilly muscles soon. <laughs> hey, mate, I can't thank you enough. Um, you're, a, um, you're a beautiful man. You are a beautiful man, and I to chat with you about cricket is fantastic for me, but I, I think... The, the, the cricket team couldn't be in better hands, mate. Best of luck because you've got a massive challenge coming your way, but thanks for spending some time on the Howie Games and um, I reckon the whole country will behind you and people will listen to this and they'll think, wow, that's a, that's a coach and a team I want to support. Thanks very much, mate. Thanks, mate. I've loved it. Oh, Justin Langer, what an absolute beauty. Passionate, determined, full of love and a really, really, really good storyteller. I love that yarn about Mike Gatting and the eating competition. Thanks to Justin for his time and to Adam Gilchrist for making it happen. And also thanks to MJ who is back in fine form producing up a storm in season four. And most importantly, thanks to you all for listening. Without you good folk, there ain't no show. Okay, next Thursday, Ray Warren. Until then... Peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.